the Grand Canyon was so fun. Uh, thanks for having us out. Thanks for bringing us down and, um, and looking at those rocks. Uh, I, I just, um, they're marvelous, you know, marvelous to see. We um, offered over the last 24 hours or so five reasons why I think this Grand Canyon should be considered a, a, a remembrance of the flood. An icon of Noah's flood. I think the flood explains the layers and the canyon itself that carved through those layers. I used to not believe that. So my plan for this evening is to just run over my five reasons one more time. It's like coats of paint. So the first coat of paint was like I was speaking in the middle of the night and you couldn't even see my face. So it's like a thin coat of paint last night. And then so we'll do another coat of paint and, uh, and just run through these pretty quickly. And then we'll just transition to questions. And you might ask questions about Grand Canyon, about rock layers, about Noah's Flood, or about other creation issues. And I'll try my best to respond to those questions in a helpful way. Um, and then, hey, if questions take up the rest of the time, I'm fine with that. We'll just handle whatever you guys want to talk about, and you'll just set the agenda. But if you sit there and I start hearing crickets chirp, chirp, then uh, I'll transition into telling a little bit about the story of how I went from believing in evolution, that I came from apes and I evolved from apes, to believing in creation. I have, sound is flaking out. I'm like, help, I have no plan B. Uh, Okay. Uh, so from evolution to creation, we could talk about that if time permits. But I want you guys to um, to be able to have the chance to ask whatever questions you want. Does that sound like a plan for the night? Okay. So so five reasons first. It's on a Word document. Your questions second. And if time permits, my story third. If not, totally cool. Uh, so, so the first reason, we didn't have anything. There's no picture for it. Because the Grand Canyon was the picture. And just picture the Grand Canyon in your mind right now. The broad, what's the big word I tried to introduce? Extent. Some of you are saying extent because you remember. Because you are A students. Yes. Those rock layers extend on and on and on and on and on. Um, The lowermost one was probably the most storied. The lowermost horizontal rock layer, the Tapiz Sandstone. Heard of it? Have you heard of it? Some people, the Tapiz. And that's the one that lies on top of, in some places, granite, and in other places, a giant stack of tilted strata called the supergroup. And so, um, when you have that sandstone that's right on top of granite, we actually see that outcrop in uh, several places around the globe. It is a global feature, and it's called the Great Unconformity. That's what I learned when I took my geology classes. And um, so the professor never said the obvious. He just said, we find this here and we find this there. We find the sandstone on top of granite here and we find it there. It's the great unconformity because we find it in so many places. This sandstone has a broad extent. But the obvious question should have been, it takes... Doesn't it take a global cause to produce a global effect? Okay, but that question simply thinks too big. We're thinking too big when we think of a global cause because uh, today's processes are not, um, they don't cover the globe with one process. If we have a flood today, it's going to flood one region, like recently, Yellowstone. 
Lots of water, lots of rain in Yellowstone. They closed the whole park last week, from what I've heard. So, but it's not here. So it's not a global flood. It's a local flood. We've had local floods uh, for, um, well, for a long time. But you can't produce a global effect unless you have a global cause. So that's where Noah's flood comes into play. So we can say a global cause helps us to explain uh, this layer. So we think that that layer, that lowermost sandstone that we find all over the globe, um, we think that that is the first rock layer deposited during Noah's flood year. We associate that particular um, um, phenomenon or observation, the, the great unconformity, with Genesis 7, verse 11 says, see if I can quote it just about right, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. So there's fountains in the great deep, in the pre-flood world, reservoirs of water beneath the earth's crust. Still a lot of water in the, underneath the earth's crust, even today. But those, those rifts were created at the initiation of the flood. So a rift is a big tear in earth's crust, and boom, all this water comes spilling up from beneath. And that's what started the flood, according to that verse. And um, so we think that as these waters were spreading across portions of the land at first, and then all of the land later in the flood, day 150, the scripture says, Seven, uh, Genesis seven nineteen, all the high hills under the whole heavens were covered. So later, this is this is uh, later on. So months have passed, and now finally the waters are rising to a point where they're covering all the high hills of that pre-flood world. So the but the initial phase, the initial pulse produced, we think that Tapetes sandstone. It's called the Tapetes here, but it's got a different name where you see it in Israel, and it's got a different name where you see it in South America or wherever. Because the local geologist who named it here wasn't necessarily familiar with the same phenomenon as it occurred in Grand Canyon or in Israel or elsewhere around the world. But you might as well just name it one name, which we've done. And you can read all about that in one of our books that we have out here. It's, uh, it, it produces, it, it, um, it lays out the broad extent. Uh, it's called um, uh, Carved in Stone. And it shows you the, the, the extent of that rock layer, the base of the bottommost rock layer, the initiation of the flood. So that's broad extent. It takes a global cause to produce a global effect. And so we are, we are open. We're open to, to thinking in terms of the Bible being right. And when we're... Instead of closing ourselves off from that perspective, we're opening ourselves up to that perspective, and, and boom, we suddenly have a, 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 a tremendous tool to explain the rocks that we see, including uh, broad extents of rock layers that go across the globe. Okay, what else? Second one was cross beds, and we looked at those today. So, um, well, I'm trying to scroll. There we go. Are you helping me scroll? Thank you. Awesome. So we looked at the cross beds, and I had so much fun watching you guys put the protractor on the rock so you could see for yourselves. Because you, you, you guys, you had these crinkled, furrowed brows when you came up with the protractor in, uh, this morning. And you, and you were like, okay, I remember this from, I don't remember this from fifth grade. Uh, you know, have you seen this show? It's smarter than a fifth grader. It's like, I don't remember. But all the fifth graders, you guys came up, and you were like, boom. 
it's 20 degrees like that and all the all the moms and dads were like what do we do with this again <laughs> so that was fun but but so I, I was able to help coach a little bit and then and then you guys it was like 20 degrees 20 degrees 20 degrees of course that's the number that we have from flume studies from repeatable lab experiments that's the angle that uh, that um, cross beds form when they form underwater so these are underwater sand dunes now that's a 400 foot thick um, coconino sandstone where it outcrops there where we where we where we there so the, the thickness of the rock uh, uh, deposit indicates the depth of the water so who remembers how deep the water was 500 feet yeah good that's minimum so it had to be at least 500 feet of water uh, on top of that pushing along all that sand and um, not wind so i went to the uh, geologic museum which is just a bad excuse for science um, at the yavapai Ge geology museum it's just placards and platitudes and storytelling guys i was so disappointed with that uh, anyway i'll get i'll get off my rant but they had a placard of course talking about the coconino sandstone and it had a picture of a desert and it said look these lizards were walking up the sand dunes and produced these tracks but the tracks that they showed right there were accurate to the tracks that I've seen in the Coconino Sandstone. And um, we have some at the Institute. We got some. And it's got the tracks in it. And every time I see them, whether it's in the canyon or replicas on display elsewhere, it shows the toes. So, so where have you seen a, a lizard walking up a, a dry sand dune and its toe marks are preserved in the sand? Nowhere and never. It's, it leaves a, an amorphous divot that quickly disappears. You have to have wet sand to preserve the toes. So that's a second evidence for us, the, the toes in the tracks uh, that, uh, that show that the coconut sandstone was deposited in water, not air, not under air, not in the desert. There was no desert. So their talk about desert is storytelling, and storytelling with which I disagree. Um, for those for those two reasons it's got the 20 degree which matches what we know from underwater flume and it's got the salamander um, toe prints in it so that's the the cross beds and then we talked about um, uh, flat contacts flat contacts you see the um, let's see if i were to does this laser do any can you see that okay so there's the there's the big beautiful red wall um, limestone well anyway so you've got a, a flat contact at the base of the tapetes uh, at the base of the bright angel shale the base of the moav shale at the base of the red wall every one of these flat 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 and so what we would expect if millions of years had elapsed between the deposition of these layers we would expect for example with this layer um an erosion rut here so it should dip down and back up and then this material should fill in the dip we don't see any evidence of those of that of that supposed time and yet in the geology museum ugh, it just kept repeating the platitude these rocks represent time 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 uh, i disagree with that i used to believe it but i don't anymore because um, i started reading creation science stuff in order to refute it, that's my story. A friend of mine challenged me and said, uh, and said, you still believe in that long ages and evolution? I said, of course, it's scientific, it's proven. Because all I, all I knew was what the placards said. And I absorbed the platitudes and placards back then without turning on my brain. And my buddy said, 
hey, why don't you turn on your brain and, and think about what you're saying and what you're reading? And so I said, no, my brain's better than your brain. So we had this, you know, challenge going on. And he said, well, read this creation book. And I said, you bet I'll read it and I'll refute every word in it. And uh, so that's part of my story. And look where I am today. <laughs> wow. I think God was like sitting up in heaven going, you're going to love this book, you know, because <laughs> you're, you're going to go from uh, you're going to go from doubting Genesis to embracing every word and dedicating your life to defending every word. Because if I can't trust God's word, then how can I trust the giver of that word? When I began to trust God's word by recognizing that, oh, you don't need lots of time, all you need is lots of water, and Noah's flood provided all that water, then all that time is gone. There's no, there's no time left for evolution. That means I didn't come from apes, I came from Adam. And when all the pieces fell into place, I thought, wow, God got it right. My professors were wrong about some of the things that they talked about. And God deserves credit for getting it right. And then I realized I can trust God himself more than ever before. And I want, I want ever since then, I've wanted every other Christian to go through that process, to go through that transformation, and to think, to think critically about what we've been taught in placards and platitudes. Uh, okay, so that's fit, uh, the contacts are, are they fissured or flat? What do you think? Flat, flat contacts between each of these rock layers. Okay, conventional ages is our next um, uh, reason why I think this, this, uh, this uh, Grand Canyon rock should be considered uh, evidence of the flood. This is a negative. The others are positive reasons. This is a negative reason. Basically, what I'm saying is the radioisotope age assignments to some of these igneous rocks, these are just a small sampling of the many that we've analyzed, they dis the, the age assignments disagree with each other, and they disagree with the relative ages. And in cases outside the Grand Canyon, where we know the actual age of the rock, they disagree with the actual age of the rock. So something is really, really broken with conventional radioisotope age dating. Why? Well, because it disagrees with the known age. It disagrees with each other, and it disagrees with relative age. So we can see the disagreement with each other in this chart by looking at the numbers, and I've got copies handed out this weekend. Um, we have this information all for free on our website, and uh, so it's all easily look upable. But I just wanted to draw your attention um, to two of these. So, okay, just let's just imagine this. Have you ever had a pancake? Why are only five people nod their heads? I mean, everyone should be going... Duh, yes, but I need to see the heads rattle. Okay, thank you. You've had a pancake. I'm connecting with somebody. Imagine this. Only syrup can be radioisotope dated. And you're going to pour a little dabble of syrup on your plate first. Don't ask me why. This is just what we're doing. And then you put nine, layer, you put nine pancakes on that, one for each of the layers of the Grand Canyon. And then on top of those pancakes, you're going to pour what? More the delicious syrup. Which syrup did you pour on first? The one at the bottom of the stack or the one at the top of the stack? The bottom was to be first. So the bottom syrup is, what, older or younger than the syrup that you poured on top? It should be older because you, it took time for you to put this stack, this pancake, that pancake, and then the youngest should be on top. Well, the evolutionary age assignment for this Syrup on the bottom, this Cardenas basalt, is supposed to be over a billion years, about a billion years. 
And the age assignment for the basalt that's on the top, here's the, here's the syrup on top of the stack of the pancakes. It dripped down the side of the pancakes and down into the canyon uh, long ago, probably during the Ice Age, something like that. Their age assignment for that is one million years. So a billion down here and a million up here. Well, we age dated the supposedly million-year-old basalt, and it came up with 1.3 billion years using their methods. So we're getting the wrong relative ages with the radioisotopes. So the radioisotope dating methods, I have no confidence in those. And this is just one of many, many examples as to why I think the radioisotope clocks are broken. It takes a better, we need a better way to look at the, to figure out the ages of these things. And um, the best way I found is like the same that would work in the court of law. And that would be like, uh, if you have an eyewitness who was there, it can tell you what happened. Doesn't that work? That works pretty well. So the next witness, were you there? And so if you're there, you could tell what happened. And the law and, and the, the judge will listen to your story. And if you're a credible eyewitness, your um, testimony is given uh, lots of validity. Well, I've, I've come to believe that that's what we have in the Bible. We have a collection of reliable eyewitnesses who were there and told us about the past. And I think that what they say trumps what modern scientists are assuming. By the way, these modern scientists automatically assume that the Bible's not right. They have a bias against the flood, a bias against the Bible, and that's exactly what Second Peter told us would happen. For in the last days, scoffers will come, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Since all things continue as from the beginning of creation. Just, it's just natural processes. There was no punctuation in moment in time when creation began. There was no punctuated moment in time when the flood happened. And there's going to be no punctuated moment in time in the future when the future judgment will happen. And that's what people say today. There was no creation. There was no flood. There's not going to be a judgment. Just live life the way you want to live it. And that's what we hear today. That's what I've heard in our culture. And, um, and I'm here to say that science supports the flood. Science supports Genesis, all of it. There was a creation, there was a flood, and that way, that, that gives us even more compelling reason to better get right with God. Uh, and he is so ready and so willing to have us get right with him. So, um, radioisotope dating, I don't think it works, and that's the fourth reason that those, those rocks don't represent time, they just represent lots of water. And then the last, um, the last reason uh, is that canyons form fast too, and so I've shown this picture here of Lewitt Canyon, which formed in... A couple of uh, minutes in, a, uh, in uh, Mount St. Helens, north in Washington State. Okay, so here we are. So this this stack of rock from where they're standing and below, all the way up to this layer here, uh, that was deposited in four minutes on May 18, 1980, on a volcanic eruption. Uh, this next deposit from here to there uh, uh, was laid down with fine layers in 1982. And then the, th the third deposit up here was laid down later in 1982, 1982. And then this whole canyon was carved in one day in, later on in 1982. And so, by the way, um, how long did it take for those sediments to turn into solid rock? Months. You don't need lots of time. You just need the right chemistry. You just need lots of water. And we have volcanic ash mixed with mud, pulverized rock, and uh, it, turned into, it turned into solid rock in just months. And uh, the canyon was carved. So you don't need a lot of time. You just need a lot of water. A lot of water to deposit layers. 
and some more water to carve through those recently deposited layers. And I think that's what helps explain the shape of Grand Canyon with the steep-sided walls of Grand Canyon. This is 140th scale Grand Canyon that we have uh, there in Washington State, showing that you don't need time to make layers, you don't need time to make fine layers, you just need water, water. And the Bible says there was plenty of water. It covered all the high hills and the whole heaven. And so, um, so canyons did it. Uh, 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 water did it. Water can do those canyons. So those are the five. So let's, let's go through those again really, really quick. Um, broad extent. And then what was the second one? My favorite rock layer. Cross beds at 20 degrees show water deposited rocks. So cross beds. And then we talked about flat contacts. Oh, one, one contacts the other. There's no erosion ruts. So that means this rock was, was laid down. And then perhaps immediately afterwards, within minutes or months, something like that, the next rock layer was deposited horizontally with horizontal water flow uh, uh, with, with uh, like an ocean of water traveling and carrying sediment at its bottom uh, across uh, the, uh, the continent, the whole world, the whole world's continents. Okay, and then, um, oh, and then there's a, the next one. We talked about conventional ages that don't work, that the dating doesn't work because it contradicts uh, everything. They contradict each other. And then finally, canyons. So canyons form fast if you have enough water. And uh, so that's what, that's what Noah's flood supplied. Well, have I given you enough to where you have lots of questions for me? Yeah, okay. So some of you have already asked me some good questions on the trail. Um, I don't suppose we have a mic. So if you have a question, just raise your hand. I'll point at you clear, and then and then I'll have to, and then I'll ask you to to uh, uh, to um, vocalize your answer. Be loud with it so we can all hear your question. Yes, sir, in front. Great question. Why don't we have human fossils with the dinosaurs? And by the way, we don't, despite claims of my colleagues and friends to the contrary. We don't. You're right. So to answer that, I'm just going to scroll up to that. The fossils that you find in all these layers are shallow marine fossils. So above, in other places on Earth, uh, above these layers that are exposed at Grand Canyon, we have even more shallow marine fossils. And above those, we finally get some dinosaur-type fossils, along with frogs and salamanders and ferns and garfish and turtles and shark teeth and clams. By the way, there's clams on the bottom, clams on the top, clams in the middle. Most fossils are clams or some kind of a shelled creature. And then, um, you know what else we don't see with dinosaur layers? We don't see... We don't see people, but we don't see bears either. We don't see dogs. We don't see deer. But we see dogs and camels and horses in layers above the dinosaur layers. So what we're seeing, I believe, I'm convinced, and you can learn a lot more about this with the book Carved in Stones, the beautiful full-colored book we have here tonight. Um, and if you do buy it tonight, we will give you the cellophane wrapping absolutely free, just for you. <laughs> just FYI. What we, so what evolutionists, uh, what I used to believe is that this represents uh, um, a progression of simple, small marine creatures that evolved into land creatures. And so we go from evolution over billions of years 
Uh, but I think instead it's a progression of the flood. So the, f- the first creatures to have been buried during that year-long flood were the creatures that were already on the sea floor. They couldn't get away. And, and then we have deep ocean buried first, then shallow oceans buried second, third, fourth, and fifth. So there's most fossils are, are shallow marine fossils. And because of that, we're, we're very uh, strongly convinced that the pre-flood world, the original world God made, had a vast, like continent-sized shallow seas, oceans that are maybe as deep as this room is tall, something like that. Uh, um, and just abundant life. Where the, where the sunlight can penetrate all the way to the bottom. You have all, all kinds of creatures, mosasaurs and crinoids and everything else. Um, shallow marine, shallow marine. But then finally, midway through the flood, the book explains why. I can tell you why. There's a lot more to the story. But eventually, midway through the flood, there was a surge. Continental sprint started. And then uh, the waters came up on land where we have dinosaurs on the swamps on the margin, and then in the highlands, they got buried last. And in the highlands, that's where hard ground living creatures live their lives, like people, dogs, deer. So we would expect to find the human fossils up where the camels are, not down where the swamps are, because people aren't swamp people, except for the swamp people. So it's a progression of the flood. Uh, uh, it's a ecological zones that were buried uh, in, a, in an order, orderly fashion during the flood. I think helps answer that question. Hopefully I won't go that long with the next question. I'll try to be more succinct. So that was a great one. Thank you for asking. I hope that helps. Did it help? Any? Okay, yay. One nodded head. It was worth it to be here. Just for one nodding. Yes, there in the front. Well, what else would we expect? What's the alternative? So the, the question was, why do the rock layers look clean and crisp? And, and why would a flood do that? And then, and then what's the alternative look? Why aren't they during like the power of the flood? Why aren't they like mixed together? Why is it so organized? Okay. I think this picture helps answer that question. So what we see in... Um, uh, fluids moving at freeway speeds, there is some mixing. Uh, um, and certainly we see um, we see heavier objects at the base of some of these flood deposits, just like we see larger cobbles at the base of this giant deposit here. But we also see organized layering that happened in uh, catastrophic mud flows. So each one of these represents a separate catastrophe that blasted um, uh, fast-moving sediment, and it deposited these in flat horizontal layers without, without much time in between them because there wasn't enough time to form you know, erosion ruts down in between them. So in other words, because we see this type of flat horizontal layering in real-life catastrophes, and because we see this type of flat horizontal layering in flume studies, that's where you have a giant track. I, I talked about the lazy river. Anyone been to like a water park with the lazy river and we float? Okay, like all the young people are nodding their heads. Like, nice. Grandpa's like, I need to do one of those. Where's one of those? That sounds like fun. Anyway, you get a lazy river and you crank up the speed and you dump a bunch of sediment in it. And then you have a glass wall on the side so you can see what the sediment is doing. 
Um, and so those, when you crank up the speed enough, they always deposit these clean, smooth, flat layers. So in other words, we would expect to see what we do see if the flood produced these layers based on real-life geology as well as laboratory geology. Uh, who else? Yes, ma'am. So that definitely was volcanic. And so those are, those are volcanoes that erupted after the Grand Canyon was, uh, the Grand Canyon layers were deposited and after the Grand Canyon was carved. So you deposit the layers, you carve through them, then you have a volcano that erupts. There's, there were, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe half a dozen volcanoes that erupted in the area. They were on the, the North Rim and spilled down the North Rim. Um, <clears throat> I've got a picture of me grabbing the lava down at the, at the river because um, the lava came down, filled the river, and actually it formed a lava dam. The water backed up, and then, um, and then the, dam, the lava dam burst and then blasted a new uh, hole and did some more, a little bit more erosion. But all that happened before people even got there. Uh, so, um, so, yes, it's lava. And what caused the lava? Um, I think the, 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 the eruptions, uh, and by the way, you can go to, um, like I drive from Dallas to Colorado every year to go backpacking. I'll be going in about three weeks. And as we drive across West Texas, we see more and more cone-shaped volcanoes. And then you get to northern New Mexico, closer you get to the Rockies, volcanoes, volcanoes. But there's no volcano cones, volcanic mountains in Dallas. Um, so... But they're dead. But there's lava rocks strewn all across the land. And so we had lots and lots of volcanic eruptions happening during the flood, immediately after the flood, and for hundreds of years after the flood. Um, and so the, those volcanic eruptions left footprints in the form of ash fall. And so the, the biggest one is, is um, Yellowstone. And the first, the, the first eruptions late in the flood left an ash fall deposit that covered multiple states, Wyoming, um, um, parts of Colorado, hundreds of square miles. The next uh, volcanic eruption from Yellowstone was a smaller footprint, and then the third was even smaller. And today we have little bitty inky-dinky volcanoes like Mount St. Helens, which is like a tiny little beep. And even that produced ash that circled the globe and uh, lowered Earth's surface temperatures for a couple of years uh, after 1980. So why is it that we had lots of volcanism long ago, but very little today? And uh, I think it's definitely related to the aftershocks, the after effects of Noah's flood. And so part of the flood model has uh, the, the Pacific plate, the crust sliding underneath the, the um, 
underneath the North American plate and the South American plate. So as that, as that newly emerging um, seafloor sub- subducts and slides under the plate, then it hits the mantle and um, heats up, and then it comes up these pipes and it forms these uh, volcanoes. But when the, when the um, continent movement stopped, then the volcanoes slowed down abruptly. So anyway, that's part of the model that we have that we're working on at the Institute. And boy, we've been working on that for 50 years. You know, we're older than 50 years working on this stuff, trying to answer the questions of what happened on our globe and putting together the clues. So it's kind of fun to be, to be me standing on the shoulders of all these scientists who have done all this work, labor, labor, labor. And, you know, you can work for years and just come up with, okay, now we know this one thing. And uh, that's, that's the one thing that one of our scientists determined was that you can get these, these um, sea floors to, uh, to move fast at a, at, a, at a jogging pace. We think it was a, a runaway subduction event during the flood, and that's what helps cause volcanism. That's why volcanoes are, are um, largely dead. They're not dead, but they're not near as, as, um, as prevalent as they used to be. And that, by the way, is why we had an ice age. So if you want to learn more about the ice age, we can talk about that, or you can get the book. And we have a book tonight that I think I wrote a chapter on the ice age. Our scientists all contributed to it. It's called Creation Basics and Beyond. And uh, if I need to, it's black cover. And uh, anyway, I think it's a handy resource. Every Christian who's in college or going to college ought to have this, this resource. Because when your friends ask you questions like, well, the flood would have left a big jumble. It wouldn't have left clean, clean slabs or whatever the challenge is that's coming at you. Um, you have to choose. Am I going to take God's word or is there some science that, that refutes it? And so we have this resource, Creation Basics and Beyond. Find the chapter, read the science, and then, uh, and then equip yourself with information and answers that, um, um, that present an, a perspective that you won't see on an atheist YouTube site. Okay, other questions? There was a little girl in the back. Do you still have it? Okay, real loud, dear. If I find bones, how do I know they're dinosaur bones? A um, couple reasons. Some of those dinosaur bones, um, are they come rarely, it happens rarely, but they come as part of uh, the, the skeleton. So in other words... Your knee bone connects to your shin bone, right? Yep, yours does. Knee bone connects to shin. So sometimes these bones are still connected. And so um, it turns out that um, when, you, when you collect enough of these bones that do connect, you can fill out a picture of what the creature's bones look like. Usually you just get one fragment of a chewed up bone, not chewed up with teeth, but smashed a smashed fragment of a bone that's all i've ever found just a fragment of one bone um, but sometimes you get a whole bone wow that's spectacular and sometimes you get a bone connected to another bone that's like the find of a lifetime and sometimes you get 80 percent of the carcass which is like the find of 40 lifetimes of paleontologists okay i used a big word you're not paying attention anymore i probably used too big of a word i'm sorry paleontologist Guys who and gals who study fossils. So the short answer is, um, th- when you put the bones together, it matches no living creature today. So 
it had to have come from a creature that went extinct in the past. When did dinosaurs live? When did they die? How did they die? I've got a book on that. It's a book just for you. And it's called Dinosaurs and the Bible. And we have it here. And I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll think about giving you the cellophane maybe. The cellophane wrapper that comes with some of those. What else? Any others? Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah, I could try to give that a go. So what about these uh, these sand dunes is what you're asking. And so, so the cross beds... <clears throat> The crossbeds don't relate to the unconformity. So the crossbeds are features within the rock layer. It's a 400-foot-thick rock layer. This one's the Coconino. And the water slowed down enough by the time we got to the Coconino deposit that it was depositing in crossbeds. In other words, it was going at a pace that wasn't so fast that it was just barfing out a bunch of sand with no pattern, which is what we have at the Tapetes at the bottom for the great unconformity. In fact, grains within the tapetes match chemically uh, the the um, the granite that's beneath it. So it was tearing up granite and redepositing that as sand right on top. So that's how fast that blast was, the first initial phase of the flood, we think. But now the water's a little slower, but it's still fast enough to make underwater sand dunes. So if you can just imagine like the wave of a sea, uh, you've been to the, uh, been to the beach, the wave comes in, pushes sand around a little bit, wave comes out, and it leaves little ripples. And so those are sand dunes. Those are underwater sand dunes, but they're just really tiny because the water column, the depth was really shallow. So the deeper it is, the fa- and, and it, if it runs at that pace, it's just going to make dunes. Now, a wave comes in, but then it goes out. To make this what we see here, you have to have water going one direction and continuing in that direction. Well, we've been able to model that with flumes. And in those flumes, we see uh, water going one direction, and it deposits, um, it, deposits the, it picks up grains of sand from here and deposits them on a leading edge, and the leading edge grows in the direction of the flow as more sand gets deposited across, making these cross beds. And then, but there's, the water's still flowing, so it picks up some more from back here and deposits another leading edge on top of that one. And then a third leading edge on top of that. So these deposits were made um, through multiple series of horizontal flowing at horizontal flows that are, were occurring simultaneously. So that's kind of the model that we have. I hope that helps. Someone else had their hand up, right? Yes, sir. How long do I think it took the animals to reproduce after the flood? Yeah, great question. Um, it depends on the animal. Yep, I don't know. You got me. I'll tell you this, though. If it was a rabbit, it would be reproducing faster than an elephant. So that's what I think about that. Um, But you know, the cool thing is, Noah 
did not release the animals from the big box that landed in the mountains of Ararat until he had evidence that there was food for those animals to eat. So he took care of those animals because he was a good animal husband. And he took care of them, made sure that they had food to eat before he released them because he knew they had to go find homes and they had to go find food and reproduce. And then they, they were able to reach all the continents back then because during the Ice Age, there were land bridges because the sea level was lower. Ooh, that's a fun puzzle piece. We could talk about that sometime. What else? Any other questions? Another one? Yes, sir. Oh, no, he's got his computer out. Oh, man, I can't compete with that. I think it's something else. Uh, he, he's asking about uh, in the days of Peleg, the, the, the earth was divided. Um, so, so we did a study on that word divided at the Institute with our Hebraist, uh, uh, Dr. Jim Johnson. And um, the word there translated divided, um, well, first of all, I don't think it's a, a geologic event necessarily. Um, and I don't think it, see, some, some have speculated that that means that's the time when the continents moved. But you can't move a continent without destroying everything on it. So, um, so we, we're confident that the continents moved. In other words, there was one landmass that God created in the creation week. It lasted for 1,656 years, and God got fed up with the sin in the world, so he judged the world with flood, just like he said he would, uh, or just like he said he did. And then you have continents uh, created and spread apart uh, during the flood. So that's the geology part. So, the, so, so, so most of the geology that explains our real world came from that flood year. But the, but the, the word, it's a, it's a unique word translated divided. And it comes, it's related to the word river. And so we've got a new translation for you. In the days of Peleg, the earth was riverized. So we made up a new verb for you. How about that? And so what we, th- what we think is that towards the end of the ice age, now that the ice sheets have melted back, we now have established the river drainage patterns around the globe toward the end of the ice age. The main drainage pattern. The, uh, yeah. Okay. River ice. Yes, they're in the front. Great question. So he's asking about the layers that are on top of the layers that we see exposed at Grand Canyon. And what's the, so if you go north of Grand Canyon, you go to Bryce and Zion, for example, you see layers that aren't exposed here at Grand Canyon. The short answer is that um, the layers that were once on top, so so those layers that you do see see as you go north, I think they were deposited uh, here in northern Arizona, what we today call northern Arizona but they were erased by the receding floodwaters. Why were they erased from northern Arizona and not further north? Because in northern Arizona, we had this uplift, this giant uh, kaibab upwarp, for example, and something called the laramide orogeny, which you can learn about when you take geology classes. So um, as the mountains were, were lifting up, the Rocky Mountains, we have uplifts that are changing the flow patterns of flood runoff. 
And uh, so when the, the region that contains, um, the broad region that contains uh, the Grand Canyon was being lifted up as the floodwaters are receding, the floodwaters are erasing the stuff that's coming up faster than it's erasing the stuff that's north. And so that's our, that's sort of our nutshell, broad brushstroke explanation. So, but you do find that pattern and it's sort of sloped. So you have, you have all these stack of rocks in Grand Canyon, but if you go north in Utah, there's more rocks on top of that. And you go further north, there's more rocks on top of that. And so it's all been tilted up. So early in the flood, all, the whole stack would have been down here, but this gets tilted up and up, and this part gets erased and erased as it gets pushed up into the bottom of the, of the receding ocean. Okay? Hopefully that helps. Yeah, so your book is uh, the big um, carved in stone book back there. These are great. Are you having a good time? Are you learning anything? Okay, five people are having a good time, and no one's learning anything. Come on. You're still here, so I know something. Yes, sir, in the back. So why didn't the predators immediately eat all the not predators right after the right after they were released from from Noah's Ark? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the scripture doesn't give us the answer. So we don't. We, that's a good question. I don't have a. I can't really answer that without a time machine to go back in time and see how Noah did it. Perhaps Noah released them in an organized way. He was a smart guy after all. He was able to build a big box that lasted for a year in very turbulent seas. Uh, and so he was really smart. Maybe he would have released them. They, um, they were not all vegetarian when they got off the ark. We know that because Genesis chapter 6 does inform us. We don't need a time machine. We have what we need to know about that time in the scripture. Genesis 6 informs us that um, the whole world was corrupt. Not only were the people corrupt, the animals were corrupt. The whole world was full of violence. That's the key word. When it got so violent that everyone's tearing each other apart, animals are tearing each other apart, they're eating each other before the flood. And so they're violent. And so God said, I've had enough with all this violence. Done. I'm done with it. And uh, so, uh, so I don't know the answer to that. But it's easy for me to imagine that Noah would have released um, the prey first and given them ample time to find places to live. And he just kept feeding the predators uh, uh, on, on the ark for a little while. Did he have to feed the predators um, animals for food? Nope. It turns out that the animals we think of today as predators, like lions, tigers, bears, dogs, they all, uh, they all are actually what we call in the, in the wild, even today, opportunistic omnivores. Opportunistic means they'll grab whatever they can when they can. And omnivore means they'll eat whatever they can eat whenever they can eat it. But that's most animals um, that we think of as predators. So that's why we feed our dogs, which are supposed to be order carnivora, you know, um, in, among the mammals. We feed our dogs dog food, but dog food is mostly made of rice. 
So Noah could have done the same type of thing. Um, I've, even, I've even read articles about tigers in zoos that are raised on uh, cat food. And when presented with raw meat, they weren't raised with it, and they sniff at it and walk away. That's nasty. What is that bloody gross? I want my rice pudding. Or whatever they say. Because that's, that's how cats... To me, I'm not a cat person. So that's kind of how, how cats go. Yeah, great question. And uh, that's, my, that's my best best guess. These are fun. You guys are really putting me through the ringer. I appreciate it. Have you all noticed that it's the adults' questions that I have answers for, but the kids' questions, I'm like, ah. Ah. So way to go, youngins. Yes, sir, in the back. From the Middle East, right. Um, okay, a couple of ways to answer that. First of all, what would that trail look like? Well, an animal can have generations of animals that migrate from here to there to there over multiple generations. And then let's say that that happens. And let's say that you've got kangaroos in the Middle East, which, by the way, they were. They came off the ark, so good question. And then you've got kangaroos in, in Asia. And then you've got kangaroos in um, Indonesia, and then finally you've got the first kangaroos to pioneer Australia. Back then there was a land bridge. They could hop all the way. Would, would all these generations establish populations that would persist unto this day? Question mark, he asked. Not necessarily, because people move in. Now, people finally disperse after the Tower of Babel, and they move into where there's kangaroos in Indonesia. And people start looking at those kangaroos, and they're like, I'm starving. That kangaroo started to look delicious. And so they, maybe they wiped out the kangaroos. Um, but that leaves us with no evidence, because if the kangaroos were eaten, the evidence is gone that they were there. So what kind of trail would we expect? Well, I mean, maybe there's a chance that someone would have, like, drawn a picture, I don't know, like a cave painting or something of a kangaroo that's not in Australia. There's cave paintings of kangaroos in Australia, but they've been in Australia for millennia. Well, it turns out five years ago, researchers found a cave painting of a kangaroo in India. So it leaves us a trail. And as creation scientists, we've always been saying kangaroos lived in the Middle East and they hopped from Noah's Ark over generations all the way to Australia. And then secular scientists verified our prediction for us. Isn't that cool? You can read all about it at icr.org. I wrote an article. I've written about a thousand articles on about a thousand different topics. And, and all of them point to what? Evidence that confirms Genesis got it right. Confirms the Bible. Well, let's wrap it up. How about that? We've been here for about an hour. We're getting sore. You guys have been so patient, and I love your questions. It's been great. So, um, so let me just leave you with an encouragement tonight. Um, I'm here 
I'm here because before I realized that science supported Scripture, I thought that only parts of the Bible were true. I thought that the Jesus parts, maybe, maybe those parts are true. But the Genesis parts, that's a joke. So here was my witness. Here would be my witness. Um, you, you might not want to know, learn about Jesus because, uh, anyway, Jesus is pretty cool, you think? Well, why would I need to learn about Jesus? Well, because he saves us from our sins. Well, what are sins? Well, sins come from the Garden of Eden. Well, the Garden of Eden, that's a joke because that comes from Genesis. You're right. <laughs> that's me. So wimpy, so scared, so... You know, my view of God was like this, like a wallet-sized picture. He's a little bitty God. He can do some things right. He can write some scriptures. Now my view of God is bigger than the universe. A canvas bigger than the stars. He created all of it. He created me. He created me for a purpose. And whenever there's a question that maybe a scientist or a skeptic raises about the Bible, I've always found an answer so far. And I'm 51 years old. I've always found an answer. And every time I find that answer, I go back to the Bible again. And I marvel at how excellent God's word is and how excellent God himself therefore is. And I want that for each of us. And so if some of these skeptical type questions might end up in your life in the future, let's say you're going to college, you're going to get some of these. Uh, if you're struggling with them now, we have answers. Answers that show you the other side, that show you the evidence that does support Scripture, that God did get it right. And if he gets it right about the regular stuff, the real world, then we can trust now more than ever, with all the science that does support Scripture, we can trust the heavenly teachings. We can trust that God got it right also when he says, you're a sinner and you can't save yourself and you need outside help. These are spiritual teachings. Those teachings are just as true as the fact that God created us and that he flooded the world and that he's going to judge the world again. So, so uh, be encouraged. There's plenty of science to support your Bibles. And uh, you can learn about lots of it from the resources that we have today. Plenty of it's free also uh, at um, icr.org. And please, please, please consider signing up for our free magazine which gives you what? Every time it comes in your house, it gives you free another article, another picture, another piece of evidence that points to Genesis being um, God's word, totally trustworthy. And therefore, God himself, totally trustworthy. So I encourage you to sign up and trust the Lord yourself. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Thank you very much.